2: Okay, we're here on Conspiracy Normal. It's uh, your host Adam Sane and your co-host Luke Reed. All right, and uh, we're going straight into the guest tonight. We have on the line Mr. William Ramsey via Skype, and we are going to talk about one of a <clears throat> one of our uh, favorite persons to talk about on this show. But we're going to go into a lot more de- to detail tonight. Uh, that would be uh, Mr. Alistair Crowley, and somebody we've talked about a lot. I think Luke. Your premier perspective, we talked, we mentioned him quite a few times. Oh, yeah. But uh, tonight we're going to kind of talk about Alistair Crowley and connection to September 11th. So this should be an interesting one. Uh, William, thank you for coming on Normal. Thank
3: you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. And I just
2: want to kind of start out tonight, um, kind of like introduction to like who you are, your background, and how did you come to, uh, to study Crowley? and uh, what kind of like, your motivations to do so, to study him? Because he's not, um, he's kind of become more well-known in recent years, but uh, like a few years ago, he wasn't as well-known. So kind of how how did you get into studying uh, Alistair Crowley? Well,
3: I really was kind of like an, an independent researcher. I really wasn't a very public person, but I was always curious about uh, differences between what, uh, the mainstream media was telling us about certain events and then kind of underlying secret or even a cold if you want to apply that term to uh, some of the the more thin narratives that we were given or the public was granted in events such as uh, Ruby Ridge, Waco, um, Oklahoma City bombing, and Timothy McBay's background. So I was always reading that stuff. And then 9, you know I kind of uh, I went to law school in DC from 95 to 98, I, I, uh, actually worked on a case that was associated with, uh, Vince Foster. Uh, it was a guy who, uh, he witnessed something happening at Fort Marcy park. And that also opened me up to, to a larger narrative. So when nine 11 happened, I, I really researched that. I actually believed when nine 11 happened, uh, I believed the cover story for probably a couple of years till 2004. And then I realized there were some serious problems with that story.
0: Yeah. And,
3: uh, Primarily, the building seven. It didn't fit into the narrative. It couldn't be explained away accurately, and because of that, it kind of nullified the entire fable or myth surrounding the uh, entire story. So, uh, I was right, really trying to figure out what happened every time I during nine eleven, and every time I would read about nine eleven, I kept seeing these kind of numerical things that popped up in elevens and seventy sevens and ninety three, which are the number of the planes and at a certain point I kind of garnered that these 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 were symbolic representations of some meaning. There was a uh, guy named Colonel May, I think out of Texas, who had kind of keyed into the same numbers, but I don't think that he applied the meaning to them and at least I didn't understand that until I started researching. Well, I was trying to figure it out. I never really had an understanding of the occult in anything other than a very topical thing. I'd grown up Catholic. I was familiar with the common culture. I listened to heavy metal. Um, but I, really right didn't, on, I didn't know, you know, what a lot of this stuff meant a deeper. So once I figured out that 11 really was a number of magic and led back to Crowley, all these things led back to Crowley and Crowley's idea. So then I really wanted to see who this person was. I really had heard about Crowley from an Ozzy Osbourne song and maybe some other references yeah. to Crowley. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I didn't really, uh, Crowley, by the way, is pronounced Crowley rhyming with Holy. That's the way he rhymed it in uh, one of his poems called The Beetle. But uh, I had uh, started researching uh, Crowley in depth, so I read all the biographies I could. I, I, you know, I read a lot, um, so uh, I really wanted to cover everything. And then I, I realized that Crowley was like many other stories and fables that, that I had been given in my life and in my education that really were thin narratives, that this guy was very deep and he had a lot of connections to the events of the 20th century. And uh, and and I argued in the book, uh, Prophet of Evil 9-11, Alistair Crowley, Crowley 9-11 and the New World Order, I argued that his ideas and his view of the world really did influence the events and really for me were the core rationale for the event um, and, and for change in the world. And, uh, you know, I, once I really... I, so anyway, after reading all of his biographies, I really went back to the core documents of what he wrote. And even the biographers skipped over a lot of stuff. Now, a lot of those people didn't get the full breadth of Crowley because of limitations uh, back in the research opportunities back in the day. There was no Internet. There was no you know, travel and transportation. and The transferring of information wasn't as readily available even 20 years ago as it is today. So I was able to really... Uh, take a very wide, broad view and, and capture, encapsulate all of his writings, or most of them. And he was a incredible literature. The guy was a first-class English um, prose writer and a pretty decent poet and uh, just wrote all the time. He was very wealthy and uh, it allowed him the opportunity to really dedicate himself to uh, really what he considered three loves, which was poetry, mountain climbing, and the occult. Anyway, so I was able to put it together, and that's why my book is primarily... Uh, what I would consider to be, a, from my bias, an objective biography of Crowley and his beliefs and influence of nine eleven, and primarily, and one of the more obvious things, not just the ideology and the reflective element of his view of the world that nine eleven and its follow on false flag terror and changes that took place in the world was, but in a very topical level, his numbers and his numerical system were in. Integrated into the event, and I made the argument right. that 119377 and 175, those plane numbers, which uh, were you know the four planes that took place, made were are actually based upon his magical system. 11 is really the number of magic; it's really the prime number in Crowley's system, and it goes kind of goes back before Crowley into the magical society of which he was part, called the Golden Dawn, and elite um, post. Uh, Masonic order of the late 19th century in England. Uh, 93 really is a number that really has no antecedent before Crowley. 93 represented this cabalic analysis of two of his prime numbers or prime ideas, which are the primacy of the will and agape. So love and will were tied together, and they both equal 93 in this subpart of the gematria. That's uh, subpart of the Kabbalah called the gematria, where numbers have uh, words have numerical meaning. Sef, sef, so, just uh, just uh, just one more couple more things. Seventy seven sure. is really a uh, you know it, it's uh, seven times the, the prime number eleven. Uh, what seventy seven represents the seventy seven names of the devil, and also it re- represents the perfected man in Crowley's view. And uh, then also one seventy five is this kind of notion of adoration. He wrote all of his kind of rituals had a numerical derivation, and one seventy five is uh, a door, which is a common. Kind of uh, use in the occult for the adoration of uh, Luciferianism and Lucifer, so those are really overt
2: right I want to return back to the numbers uh, kind of when we when we hit kind of nine eleven and and that you know the coincidences there are the um, well maybe not coincidences
3: the synchronicity yeah I would, I would uh, argue that they're not coincidental and not yeah, right. synchronous it's actually for me they're very intentional. And they're also a signaling process uh, that people who are familiar with Crowley would have identified the event through uh, an understanding of Crowleyism.
2: Sure. Well, I want to ask, I want to talk about, um, you know, who Crowley was, you know, his background, how he became involved in the occult, uh, some of the influences, like the Golden Dawn, who they were, who McGregor Mathers was.
3: Okay. Well, he was uh, born in England. He was born in 1875. He died in 1947. Uh, he was from a, a wealthy, kind of upper-middle-class brewing family. Uh, they made a lot of money through the pubs of England, and he was an only child. He, it really afforded him a, a privileged upbringing. Uh, he was part of the Plymouth Brethren, which was a uh, kind of a Puritan group in England, and uh, he rebelled against that. And, uh, really after he left school, he, he was able to enter into Cambridge and was there that he, he began an interest in the occult. And he really set out to not just become an occultist, but become the, the best occultist there was really, uh, he devoted all of his time to studying the occult. He actually said he wanted to be the kind of, to paraphrase him, the right hand man to the devil. And, uh. It really set him along a path of uh, of kind of adventures, adventuring in the occult for the rest of his life. He then set out to uh, he read a couple books uh, about kind of secret societies, which led him to the Golden Dawn, which was a uh, high level post Masonic masonic society involved in ritual magic, and it it had many of the kind of cultural elite were in it. Um, of the late 19th century, uh, uh, primarily probably one of the, the better known people was a, uh, oh God, what's the poet's name is uh, William, Butler Yeats. You know, William Butler Yeats, Bram Stoker was arguably a member who was the writer of Dracula um, and some other luminaries, and uh, he uh, ascended through the grades very rapidly and eventually was kicked out after arguing with Yeats. Um, but they had a, a very close contact, and Yates actually kicked him out of the occult lodge at a certain point, and Crowley then just uh, decided to set off and start his own um, his own kind of school, and uh, he was also at this time involved, and he he was known to have become, studied for the entrance exams for the Foreign Service in England, and then said he dropped out publicly, but... After my research, it's pretty apparent that he was always an asset of English intelligence all the way until the end of his life. Um, yeah. And so he was he was known to travel very frequently to places where there were uh, frequent turmoils. And uh, so all the while, while he was engaging in this occultism, he was traveling as well. So he had a very... It was very difficult to trace his whereabouts, where he was going and where he was at any given time. And I don't think any of his biographers or people who really studied Crowley very well have actually put a timeline of the places that he was uh, at any given time and, and that's that's uh, in any detail.
2: Isn't it interesting that uh, you have so many people in intelligence services that are involved in occultic activity? Yes, I do. I
3: find that there is there's definitely a strange... Uh, correlation, and I think that, um, you know, I think that that's the attraction. If you see that even the foundation of RCIA in the United States is all skull and bones, people back to you yep. know the uh the vaunted creation of the national security, I think that was it the National Security Agency in 1947 or that uh National Security Act, excuse me, of 1947, and uh. So yeah, and you know, there's definitely some overlap of Crowley to America, and uh, there it's pretty clear to me that the Bush family is uh, is acquainted with what Crowley would call scientific illuminism. So Crowley tried to take the kind of hodgepodge, uh, multifaceted thing, uh, Western occultism, and really systematize it and, and make it a systematic. Uh, allow for people to have a systematic approach to his, to his, uh, philosophies. He really was, uh, really a singular, uh, character in a lot of ways. And so he started something called the AA, which was an independent, uh, study association for people who are interested in the occult. And then he also, uh, and he borrowed a lot of things from and or flat out stole. There was actually a lawsuit between him and McGregor Mathers, who he was, who was his kind of magical guide. Um, McGregor Mathers arguing that Crowley stole a lot of uh, Golden Dawn materials, which I think was uh, actually was true, but it was laughed out of court, and you know the court didn't have a lot of time for these two very or um, singular figures. Uh, and there's, there's some funny things in my book about how they, what what the the legal system of the turn of the century thought about Crowley. But then Crowley also became uh, he was actually approached by another intelligence agent with Brit- with German intelligence, a guy by the name of Theodore Reuss, R-E-U-S-S, to join or become part of the OTO, which is called the Ordo Templi Orientalis, which is a German secret society. It's the order of the Oriental Templars. And uh, actually, Reuss uh, thought that Crowley stole some of his information. They seem to have come up with the same kind of precepts at the same time, which is, uh, ritual magic with the involvement of drugs and sexual activity. And uh, anyway, Crowley then became a member. Eventually, Royce passed away. Crowley became head of the OTO from 1925 till his death in 1947. And uh, he uh, he really was infamous in England. He actually created, uh, loved the notoriety. He tried to stay in public. He uh, came to the United States during World War I, where, in my argument, I mean, there's not a lot of open evidence, but in my opinion, he was an asset of British intelligence. It was known that he was an asset in certain writings. If you see uh, Secret Agent 666, which is another book about Crowley, but more uh, takes uh, from an American author that uh, looks into his kind of spy stuff, this uh, historian, I think, out of Idaho, Spence, dug up some information that shows that American intelligence knew Crowley was an asset. And Crowley was involved in uh, infiltrating both the pro-German. Um, back in World War I, you know, the, the United States was neutral, and the English were really, and the French really wanted the United States to come on the war alongside them, and the, the Germans obviously didn't want that to happen. So Crowley uh, really was part of that effort to get the United States into war on the Allied side.
2: It seemed like he was making a lot of pro-German, and he was also like declaring Ireland independent and things like that. Yeah, and
3: he was curly was was really something else. He was really capable of making these really bizarre public statements. So what he did is, as a, an asset of he he actually claimed that he was for Irish independence, uh, which was something the British did not want. So as a British asset, he got on a boat with his scarlet woman, who was his his magical partner at the time and actually went out to the um Statue of Liberty and supposedly tore up his passport and made this really pompous statement of Irish liberty uh that was that actually ran in the New York Times and you can actually read part of it. I think in my book I have some of that. But you know, it was this really public thing. He actually wasn't allowed to get on the Statue of Liberty and make the statement because he didn't get the proper permits. Uh, so yeah. it's kind of like this kind of funny thing. So the prophet of the new Aeon uh, didn't really get to the proper permitting to uh, make his, his appropriate statements. And that's where, kind of why I call the book Prophet of Evil, is that Crowley thought of himself as an agent of change. Uh, he used the term not uh, Aeon, which was kind of a cosmic change in society. So not A, it was kind of like this concept that's beyond age, like the golden age or... Uh, What is it? Uh, Iron Age or something like that. So he wanted real change. He wanted to illuminize the world. And uh, he actually had a Kabbalic number for that, which is 418. Incidentally, this uh, uh, movie Transcendence with Johnny Depp uh, is coming out on April 18th. So it's right in in conformance with Crowley's Kabbalistic uh, uh, calculations.
4: Who was his, uh, this woman that you speak of as magical partner? So
2: Yeah, to, to further that, too, what was his concept of the Scarlet Woman? Because I think that was important to, to, to understanding Crowley. So
3: Crowley really didn't mind uh, taking stuff from the Bible and making the uh, yeah. coming uh, stuff. He really liked Revelations. So in Revelations, there's the Scarlet Woman and the Beast. So Crowley refers to himself as the Great Beast, or To Megatherion in Greek, which is... The great beast and then his consorts were the scarlet woman so uh you know in uh revelations it's the scarlet woman rides the beast so he had a series of scarlet womans who would ascend to uh this kind of sidekick um female opposite of him for these magical workings and uh, he had a list of seven scarlet woman at the time uh Of what, when he was in the United States, the Scarlet Woman, he had a couple, but the one who went out to the uh, Statue of Liberty was a famous, kind of semi famous Australian uh, musician uh, whose name escapes me off the top of my head. But uh, so anyway, he would take these women and actually literally brand them with the Mark of the Beast. You can see parts of that in my book. He would put a brand on their chest. The Mark of the Beast was Crowley's concept, and, and the Mark of the Beast is something that. Is still a concern and something about Christendom, in Christendom about taking the mark of the beast, and it goes back into uh, the Revelations, of the, the the biblical reference. I can't remember off the top of my head, but anyway. So he would brand them on their chest, and they had a permanent brand, and uh, it was very pretty scary. So he would he would he viewed these Scarlet Women as his. His magical partners and his rituals to try to break on through to the other side, so to speak, um, and uh, partakers in his sexual magic.
2: That's pretty hardcore that someone would allow, you know, somebody to do that. Brand that brand them. With brand the, them. Uh, the, yeah, that, you have to be pretty
4: devoted, really. Um,
3: and they were. I mean, you can see some. Uh, the there was another one. He started an abbey, a magical abbey, after he was uh, after he left the United States he went to a place called Cefalù, which is in the Isle of Sicily, and uh started a magical abbey and uh you know, his Scarlet Woman had to take all these oaths. Crowley really liked to have secret oaths and these women would take these oaths to, you know, totally devote themselves to Crowley's ideas and his uh belief in change in changing the world. So yeah, it's uh it's pretty intense. And Crowley really, uh, for me, like after reading it, he really did believe that he was somebody special. He referred to himself as one of the seven most important people who lived. Uh, that was yeah. really his objective. He put himself up there with uh, Buddha and Muhammad and Christ. And uh, let's see, who were the other ones? I think it was Confucius and who else? So just a couple other people. So he really thought of himself as, as this... Uh, you know, apex character. And, uh, you know, most occult, cultists refer to Crowley. What I found is they refer to Crowley. They base stuff on Crowley. They model their lives on Crowley. And that's something that I didn't quite understand until I still really researched it in or researched Crowley in, uh, in depth.
4: The mark of the beast, uh, according to the Bible, I believe is six, six, six. Why did, uh, why did he come out with the book seven, seven, seven? What's, uh, What's the deal with the 777?
3: So the 777 is also Kabbalistic, and what it meant to Crowley, it was actually a table of correspondences. It was pretty ambitious exercise by Crowley in uh, making a table that, uh, that students could see the similarities between different religious uh, traditions all across the world. So, like, for example, if uh, the... Let's see. The Greeks would call one god a name. The Romans would call a god a name, and the uh, and the Egyptians would call a god a name. The uh, you know, at a first glance, people would think those were all different gods. Well, they were all the same conceptually, but they referenced different names. So Crowley created this table of correspondence to to show that they were all same in meaning, while the words uh, or the the form was different the meaning was the same if that makes sense ah okay sure. so you'll see 777 table of correspondences and they'll see references all over the place 77 people still are using it today michael jackson had a 777 t-shirt and so does rihanna and all these people reference this uh, table of correspondences uh, fairly frequently i've actually you know once you're once you understand what it meant what it means it's kind of you know it, you can see these core elements of Crowley that have suffused himself and seeded themselves in even up to the current culture.
2: Yeah, there's a lot in popular culture now that seems to be directly from from Crowley, which I want to hit on a little bit later. Okay. Um, but I want to talk about his interactions with some of the otherworldly entities. Okay. Uh, particularly Aiwass, I think I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, and Lam, which is another particularly important one. Yeah, what were those? Um, what were those communications like? What did they communicate to them? How did those? How did those play out?
3: Well, uh, Crowley was always trying to reach what I think a Christian would call a demon. He was always trying to reach otherworldly entities from pretty much an early, early, early age. He was always trying to do that. He his first step was to do something called the, um, I think it was called the Alemontra. Uh, was a working he bought a large castle up in northern Scotland called Bullskin manor to yeah. do a uh, a ritual that uh would basically summon the demons of the Goetia. and um it was God, i can 't remember it now but basically that was his first attempt and and then he would always be trying to to do these things well in nineteen o four he and his wife uh who was, uh, her last name was Kelly. They were traveling around the world. Crowley was really one of the first people to circumnavigate the world. He circumnavigated it twice um, in his lifetime, back at, you know, when you had to, you know, basically take ships and trains. Um, and on his way through Egypt, he uh, his wife and Scarlet Woman at the time heard something say, you know, they're calling for you. This is 1904. It was April, it was right around, April right around now. It was April, I think, 11th, 12th, and 13th. Um he received something he called the Book of the Law in 1904. And it was from an entity called Awas. Well, Awas refers to the Lord of the Air, and in the Bible, the uh, the devil's referred to as the Prince and Power of the Air. So it's very, it's just a for me it's a pretty clear it's just a another name for the devil. But uh this, this book received received by was received by Crowley. And you can see the book in its entirety and it's it's handwritten. It was basically a received book you can see it in my book, uh, Alistair Crowley, A Visual Study, which you can find on Kindle. Uh, it's all kind of laid out with all the visual stuff that I've collected. But uh, it's a pretty nasty book. It's written in three parts, like I said. And uh, the the last part is uh, there's this represent, representation of the god Horus, the one-eyed hawk god. And it basically condemns all creeds. So this book uh, from Crowley is like hatred of Muslims and Buddhists and Christians and uh, it's, it has some very aggressive, nasty uh, statements, but so Awos is this being that cruelly ended up trying to obtain the um, contact with the rest of his life, and that's something that I think a lot of other biographers uh, looked over, so he was always praying to Awas when he was at his magical uh, place in Chephelu, or when he was doing his other rituals, it was Awas, where's Awas? Awas give me power. When he got kicked out of uh, Italy he was kicked out of France and Italy uh for spying and you know uh engaging in his magical practices, but he was always praying to Awas for money or help or stuff like that so awas you know he would see him on the on the beach or he would have contact with him during rituals and uh that was kind of like his guiding force um this other uh during another working. I think it was the Alamantra working in New York that he had something called the Lamb um, Reception, which is pretty fascinating, I think, for people who are really studying the paranormal and stuff like that, because he had this this entity, and he actually put a drawing into, uh, there was a statement, and there was also, you know, this... uh, uh, it basically he put a drawing into his uh, encyclopedia. He made an encyclopedia called the Equinox, and this drawing is very similar. This entity that he saw in New York City uh, is this uh, entity that looks like what would be a gray, a gray alien that he drew before, right yeah. way before anybody was really involved in UFO. So you have this kind of visual record that I think is absolutely astonishing. And Lamb is a titular um, title. It's not like a name like, you know, Bob or Richard or David. It's really like, um, like it's a derivation of llama, like the Dalai Lama. And uh, there's actually the Dalai Lama, who's out here in my hometown in Los Angeles recently, and there's actually a strange tie, Crowley's, it's just amazing how Crowleyism runs through even everything up in the modern age because one of Crowley's followers was a guy by the name of Gerald York, one of his primary followers, he was a gatherer of his book. Well, York went on to establish this uh, connection with the Dalai Lama and really kind of boosted the Dalai Lama's understanding in the West. But, uh, yeah, anyway, so this lamb lamb uh, creature or whatever... Um, was something that Crowley had, uh, seemed to have had contact with, and, and in addition to all these other entities, um, I think, uh, there were other entities called, one was the wizard, um, one was, oh man, I can't remember, they're in the, they're in my book, um, I think Alamantra was the name of one, um, and then there was another, he had a, a, a spiritual, of assault with one of his followers, this guy by the name of Victor Newburgh. They went to Algeria, uh, like around 1908 or 1910, and they went to an oasis and uh, they summoned a demon of the abyss called Coronzon, C H O R O N Z O N. And uh, that was another, and this demon supposedly attacked him according to their records, and that was just another kind of, uh, exp- uh, otherworldly or supernatural experience that Crowley had had.
2: Wasn't there something, because I think the kind of telling the clean version of that story, that uh, they, they were engaging in homosexual sex inside the circle as well? Yes,
3: yeah, so like yeah. a detailed was, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, Crowley's, there's some really vulgar, I mean, Crowley's ideas were really um, something else, and yeah. Uh, I really, I didn't, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the book I didn't, wasn't really sure whether to put in, but I just, you know, opted for that um, thing. But Crowley thought that, he really thought that uh, the path to inspiration and illumination was going, was through depravity. So, you know, that's what really invoked these spirits was these types of acts. And uh uh he admitted that very early in his life even in his cambridge days and i I can't remember exactly i I can only paraphrase it but yeah he said something like that um so you know a lot of his sex magic had a lot of different there were a lot of different um a lot of different acts that would take place like he was involved. Like the rumor of him and the bush family is that the bush grandmother the mother of uh Barbara Pierce was involved with Crowley in in France in the uh, mid-20s while Crowley was there after being kicked out of Italy. And uh, Crowley at that time was involved in something called ECL, which basically um, stands, well, I can tell you, I know what it stands for. It it basically was like you just have tons and tons of sex and then go into a coma state. and, And the women are the basic... Uh, assistance in this process and uh, the, the, the rumor is is that one of the assistants was Barbara Pierce the, mo- the mother of Barbara Bush this
2: is the whole idea that uh, George W. Bush was the grandson of
3: Alister Crowley correct, correct and you can't yeah. it's, I couldn't prove it but I right. can't tell you that it's clear that he was president when this whole event of 9-11 took place and all the numbers are there and Crowley, Crowley physically, his—they his, always said he had a big head and kind of like a smaller body that didn't fit his head. And if you look at um, the mother, uh, Barbara Pierce Bush, she she uh, she looks an Axel. I mean, you can put their faces together; the, the similarities are there. I mean, I don't know what to say.
2: Yeah, I've seen I've seen the uh, pictures of Crowley and Barbara Bush side by side. It is <laughs> pre- it is pretty convincing. Less so for. George W., but it is pretty convincing for Barbara Bush. You look perplexed there, Luke.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering, uh,
2: why
4: couldn't you tell us what, uh, ECL stands for? Stands, well, not
3: really. It stands for Erato Comatose Lucidity.
4: It's basically,
3: okay. Erato, you know, ER, er, E-R, like Eros, and then Lucidity. So, I mean, uh, use your imagination, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. They, it's in, uh, it's in a book called De Art Magica, D E A R T E M A G I C A. That was one of his writings. And he was always writing stuff down. I mean, the uh, the volume of stuff he produced was incredible. He always had these kind of like follow on like these uh like what you would call uh, a secretary who would write everything down and categorize and I mean in his like he really had this I mean, somebody described it, one of his biographers said he really did have the sensibilities of a Puritan for an occultist, which is really strange and, and counterintuitive, but, like, the guy just put out book after book after book after book. It's amazing.
4: Do you think that uh, the method that he was using to extract the energies uh, during during the sexual events... Do you think they were trained in
3: Tantra? Absolutely. Yeah, he definitely was trained in all. You know, one of the things you'll find out about occultists in general and Crowley in specific is they incorporate what they consider to be the wisdom and knowledge of the world. So you'll see other occultists like L.A. Ron Hubbard make these same statements. Oh, he's traveled the world and got all the knowledge. Well, Crowley did that, too. So he was very well versed in yoga the precepts of Buddhism. He understood, I mean, Crowley had a great understanding. He knew more about Christianity than I did. He understood about Muhammadism or Muslim. I mean, and then incorporated that into his ideas or what he picked and choose what he wanted to incorporate. So it's clear to me that he knew about Tantric ideas. And uh, there's actually pictures in a visual study of Crowley doing yoga, like before, you know, yoga was Westernized, you know, back when yoga was actually a way for the, yogis to, you know, try to contact the gods. Now it's just, you know, can I get some six-pack abs or
2: something? Yeah, right, right, right. Just <laughs> right. I don't even know
3: if they should call it yoga anymore or should call it, like, Pilates. I mean, basically, Pilates is yoga without the Eastern religion. <laughs>
2: uh, the Abbey of Thalima, and I think this is a perfect place to pick this up, um, because we're talking about the sexual magic. You know, there was some pretty sordid stuff that went on there. Um, you know, what was the significance of the Abbey of Lima, And, you know, also, you know, he got kicked out of Italy for it.
3: Correct. It's an interesting story. So he was always trying to find this place where he could start a magical uh, thing, kind of like a Hogwarts or something like that, where people could come and learn. And he had tons of books, and he uh, threw the I- sticks of the I Ching, which was a way to ascertain the will of the gods, and they directed him to towards... Uh, Cefalu, which is on the coast, the northern coast of uh, Sicily, uh, as I kind of stated earlier. But they, he, he got this little uh, rundown kind of uh, place with not really good running water, and called it the Abbey of Felima. And the Felima is Will, which in Kabbalah equals ninety-three, and it was really just a place of self-exploration. So people at that time from all over the world would travel there. People who were interested in occultism and Crowley promised them all these things that the standard occultist does, which is, you know, breakthroughs artistically and breakthroughs spiritually and stuff like that. And he proceeded to decorate all the walls with um, pretty profane um, art and created magical circles on the floor. And they would have rituals all the time. And uh, they, uh, it thinks you know, he attracted some talented people. He also, uh, you know, they did drugs all the time and basically had open sexual relationships. And, uh, you know, while he was there traveling to and from, interestingly, he was he spent three days in Italy, in Rome, when uh, Mussolini uh, basically invaded Rome and took over for the fascists. So that's like another element of his spying. And then eventually Mussolini would kick him out, I think, in 1921, 1924. I can't remember the dates now. But, so I always
2: wondered about, most, about whether he, because he was in Italy at such an opportune time, about whether he was actually spying.
3: Uh, I would say that he was that always moment. spying, wherever he was. If you look through Crowley's, like, his itinerary, he was always in strange places. He was in Russia right before the uh, revolution. So he was traveling to Russia under the guise of a, an entertainer and... Uh, that's where he wrote the Gnostic Mass based upon Eastern traditions, um, and then he's also in in the United States for the four years, when England's almost primary objective, other than winning the war, was to get the United States with all its manpower and resources in the war. So here he is in New York, the center, kind of the center of cultural and financial power, and then he's in Italy after World War One, like right when all these upheavals are taking place. So, you know, he had, and then he actually ended up in Weimar, Germany, uh, which uh, there's actually a book I'm looking forward to read by somebody who's a real pro-Crowley type about Crowley's time in early, in Germany between 1930 and 1934. And there he is sitting with other spies, other known uh, spies, Gerald Hamilton and all these other people, and it just kind of verifies all this stuff. And then he actually goes on, um, in World War One; he was actually kind of consulted, or there's an argument that's not really clear, but... Um, that he was consulted to kind of deal with, with, uh, Hitler's, um, Hitler's rise to power. And, uh, he, when Hitler's ad, the guy who flew to England, um, gosh, I can't remember his name.
2: Yeah. Rudolph. Huss. Rudolph. Huss,
3: thank you. He was supposedly consulted, and his, uh, his, his overseer at the time during world war two was none other than Ian Fleming. who went on to, to write James Bond novels and, uh, the first James Bond novel was called oh, the, the the main character was this person modeled on Crowley and he was titled S-H-I-F-F-R-E Schiff, Le Chiffre um, and it was I uh, can't remember the name of it. Anyway, so you just see these things with Crowley and, and Intelligentsia going through the whole thing but then going back to the Abbey of Thlema, uh the whole thing kind of uh, blew up after one of these uh, one of his followers. Crowley always he was an elitist he was really not an elite egalitarian he always thought he was going to find diamonds and polish them he didn't want to have anything to do with the muck of the mire he called it which was middle or lower class people who he didn't consider to be intellectual or character equals and uh he he had this one uh uh kid come in who eventually died after drinking some bad water and uh that pretty much uh left a stain on the abbey of Felima, and then he was eventually kicked out and uh it really just you know didn't go very well but people have traveled there Of crowley's followers have gone there kenneth anger and uh, uh some other people have traveled there and taken pictures and it still seems to be there uh right there in chef to this day like Kinsey, Kinsey was
2: also the person that was interested in it yep, too. Kenneth uh,
3: Anger and Kinsey, I think, traveled there together. There's a picture of of them together at the Abbey of Palema.
2: Well, I want to turn to um, to 11 and I want to turn. You know, we kind of talked a lot about these elements that are here, like the you know Crowley's um, <clears throat> association with with intelligence, um, the class that he came from, uh, very elitist. Um, what do you think is the association there with 9-11? Uh, how do you think that the numbers, and you, you mentioned that you don't think that that's a synchronicity, that that's done on purpose. Uh, what do you think that all means, and what what is the, what is the what was the purpose behind
3: 9-11? Well, I think that it was to uh, create change in conformance with will. That was kind of Crowley's um, concept, magical concept about his doctrines, was to make change uh, based upon the individual's Uh, desires so I see that 9-11 was was an event that was a very complex layered event but it was actually kind of a magical working in a lot of ways Um, and uh, you know the fact that it was done on the 9-11 that it was September 11th I think is the primary date and the actual buildings themselves have a lot of occult uh, elements built into the World Trade Center which is very strange and there's also um, the Millennium Tower, which was nearby, which is the, um, you know, these occult uh, elite people, the way that they express themselves are very different than the, than the public uh, really ascertains. And in It's initiatory. Crowley's whole system was always, he called Satan the god of initiation, and Crowley's systems were always the initiatory. So a lot of this stuff is kept secrets, and those secrets are powerful on a variety of different levels. But 9-11... I think the whole goal was to really uh, make, was, uh, was not just, it, it was to make change in the whole world, really. I mean, it, uh, it really did, it fomented global warfare, there was fake terror that associated with it, uh, there was, it was really kind of an intellectual, it was an elitist revolution in a lot of ways, it made money for people who already had money, you know, and, sure. uh, so the oil interests got their money and the defense interests and... uh you know the financial interests basically pumped and dumped the entire economy for those eight years after 9/11, and um, so uh, you know there was definitely an agenda that I don't think the public really ever, it may not totally understand even to this point that was was uh, really was 9/11 was the kickoff uh, moment.
2: Quite a few shows ago, we talked about. Um I don't know if you're familiar with Adam go Oh uh, yes, um, uh-huh. he uh, wrote a book about uh, a guy named James uh, James Shelby yeah, Downer. Right.
3: Yeah. Well.
2: And can kill three three. Yeah, can kill three mm-hmm. three. And Downer's whole idea was was that you had these these events that were taking place that were being pulled off by basically by Freemasons. Like the you know the Kennedy assassination was one of them, right. and they all kind of. And uh, I think of the Roswell Crap. Well, I think maybe that was added later. But there were. it was all around this 33rd degree parallel. Right. And supposedly, in Downer's point of view, and he was writing, I think, in the 60s and 70s, that there was going to be one more huge event that was going to happen, that these guys were going to pull off. And uh, it makes me think of that, what you're talking about, with these, how this numerology is involved with 9-11, and also this concept that they were two towers, which I think is a symbol of Freemasonry.
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, there's the Boaz and Jashin reference of the two towers. There's actually this concept of two becoming one, which is this notion of duality in magic, which is uh, you know very important. So you have in the magician you take the macrocosm and microcosm and put them together, and the macrocosm is uh, represented by a hexagram or six-sided. Uh, you know, star and then the hexagram is the microcosm of the individual, so those uniting make an 11. And the twin towers are basically a huge le- 11 uh, up against the skyline, but it's also an ideogram of this kind of representation. So there's all this very rich symbol, symbol, you know, symbology and numerology integrated. The towers themselves are 110 stories broken up into three different. Uh, section. So to get to the top, you have to take two different elevators. So it's basically uh, 33, 33, 33, and then there's two starts. I mean, it's incredible how detailed uh, that whole thing is. Um, and you know, it's uh, in the center is they called it what the spherical caryatid. The karyotid was a, was a. Um, was basically a sculpture that held up a temple, but it's really not a caryatid. It just was given that name. But the reference makes it, makes that implication upon the architectural design of of the World Trade Center as a temple. So it's references that. And that spherical caryatid is actually in fire, Fight Club, believe it or not. So it's kind of a funny little representation at the end of the Fight Club when they blow that up and it rolls down and kills the star, destroys the Starbucks. But uh, yeah, so. It's uh the whole the whole building itself is uh was something else. So you know, and and even going back to Shelby Downard, the events of JFK. What when did JFK get shot? November twenty second. You know, so it's eleven twenty two. So twenty two is a variation of eleven, the number of magic. After he gets shot, there's you know some. Pyramid or some other obelisk is put onto uh, the park where he was shot. I forgot what the name of it is, but you know. And then there's a there's a lot of those guys. I was heard that I heard that the three um, tramps were led over to a masonic lodge which was nearby. I've never heard that. Yeah, so you see this kind of masonic, and you know, at the the height of masonry is you know at least from the western view is Albert Pike who was influenced by the same person Crowley was influenced by, which is a, uh, a guy who was a, uh, western occultist. Like, Albert Pike's main book was called, uh, Morals and Dogma, and he apparently ripped it off, out of whole cloth from, uh, a western, what was that guy's name? It was, uh, Albert, no. No, I can't even remember his name. Um, he was a uh, Western occultist who Crowley thought he was the reincarnation of. Believe it or not, Crowley thought he was the reincarnation of. Eliphas Levy was the guy's name. Okay, so yeah, and apparently, yeah. I mean, if you read, I haven't really been able to research it, but Albert Pike basically was a rip off artist of Eliphas Levy. So anyway, seeing so the you, highest
2: you, you lived in you lived in D.C. Who did uh, Albert Pike? Oh, you lived in D.C. for a while? Yeah, I was in
3: D.C. from 95 to 98. Did
2: you ever go to the
3: Masonic Lodge, uh, the, the, House the, of the 33rd Temple. degree? The House of the yeah. Temple. I've been to the House of the Temple. I've actually stood out there and just looked at it and went, what the heck is this? Uh, no. <laughs> I know. <mean, laughs> that was my that was my
2: feelings, too. Yeah, have
3: you have you been there? Yeah, I have. Well, yeah. see, so that's very important. So you see the, the where it says wisdom and knowledge on the outside. Do you remember that? Yeah. And then the two sphinx. Well the sphinx is the sphinx is like a a core symbol for all of masonry and even uh modern occultism. So if Alfred Levy wrote about the sphinx, you know, it's it's basically typifies the ideas of the kind of black ma- magician and the occultist and it is to to dare to be bold and keep keep silent. Have you heard have you read that uh Element of Elephus Levy that that he that he says about what the Sphinx represents.
2: Luke may be more familiar with that. He's read some of that stuff. Yeah, I, I just I just
4: skimmed through. Uh, I think Gems of the Equinox was written by. Olympias the close, the like
2: close notes version.
3: <laughs> yeah. Let me let me see if I can find it. But it's uh, I'll find that quote because it's important. Because if you and that Sphinx is still around even to this day. Because if you see like uh, Catching Fire that movie that just came out the one with the
2: uh, yeah, the Hunger Games Yeah, the yeah. Hunger
3: Games. If you see that first that first scene where she confronts the guy who is uh the guy who basically oh man, who's that character played by? He's like the the dictator of the city. If you see on his desk there's like a sphinx. It's sitting right there. So it's a direct tie to this kind of occult uh occult idea Gosh. Mm. why
4: do you what do you think the significance is of um executing the attack on uh, the twin towers at such a specific time like why does everything have to be um, so aligned to the, the perfect time the perfect date uh, what what advantage does that give a magician
3: I mean, I think that they if you're really serious about it, you have to adhere to, you know, the um, the ideas behind it. So I, I don't think that they really don't have that much of a choice. It's kind of like if you're a Christian, you do, see, do things at certain times and adhere to certain doctrines. So um, it's about a, adoration and loyalty, I think, is really what it is. So um, I think that that... That's why they they, they they adhere to these dates, and it's also, I think, part of the part of the signaling process too. You know, the dates so other people know what's going on. I think that that's kind of like the pull one over the wool over your head kind of concept where, um, you know, uh, they that's why people join the is so they can feel like they're smarter, have more wisdom, or more knowledge, or be. People of the, the, you know, have the secret knowledge or whatever. So, um, I, it's almost like a calling card, like, you know, look what we did. Yeah, I think so. Kind of, yeah. I think so. I think it's something like that. Gosh, I wish I could find this. Um, gosh darn it. Where did I put that? Yeah, so, you know, I think that, uh, I think the, the scary reality is that these secret societies have always been around in Western. Uh, culture going back centuries, and I don't think a lot of people are really familiar with it, whether it started with the Rosicrucians or, um, you know, other other groups, secret groups. I think that they've always been there. Curley himself said if he he knew enough secret hand grips and knew and had enough insignia and enough um, medals that would bury an elephant, you know, he just that's how many secret societies he was a part of
2: yeah he seemed to be like like he knew everybody and anybody, and he was all into every kind of tradition that he could get his hands on,
3: yeah I mean and I think that uh you know I think that that's that's really true, I mean, I think that he was definitely trying to uh stay mixed, and you know the more that I read about Crowley. um the more elite people that he's associating with I mean he was basically a priest of the he called himself a priest to the princes so he was really only trying to share his ideas with the elite you know and uh, I can't you know he's always with these like the Ascots and all these very wealthy American family names that he uh, yeah. had ties to it was pretty it's pretty wild
2: um, I want to ask you about who alive today you could consider like a successor to crowley
3: well i think that Crowley. i mean i i'm actually working on it my next book which is i'm still editing it but it's called children of the beast and it basically fo- it tries to follow crowley's followers and people who used him as a baseline um and uh i would say the primary people really are hubbard um leary uh in the 50s and 60s and um like real hardcore magicians uh, were followers, and Huxley seemed to know a lot about Crowley. Crowley and Huxley had very similar um, trajectories. They knew each other in Berlin, which the Huxley family denies, and that's a lie. And um, so uh, those people, you know, are uh, created great change, you know. Crowley wanted to, Crowley called the birth of the new Aeon his magical child. And the these people in the 60s wanted created that kind of Crowleyism. So you see the 60s and can perceive what happened in the 60s, this upheaval, as uh, this uh, kind of black lotus from Crowley's teachings in, in a certain sense. Um, I think it was, I think the 60s was actually started uh, well meaning and it was actually perverted uh, through a variety of different means. But um, those guys then influenced even more people. So, I think the real followers, the more public followers of Crowley, uh, today who, um, are known maybe Ozzy Osbourne, definitely Marilyn Manson, these guys. Marilyn Manson was like a, a magician before he was a mu- musician, which is, I find it interesting. Yeah. Like, he became a musician after, uh, doing research and kind of, you know, this kind of Crowleyism. Um, and then, uh, and then I have this other guy who is, you know, my other, the book that I, I wrote, another book called Abomination, Devil Worship and Deception and the West Memphis Three Murders. And uh, this other guy, Damien Eccles, is a total Crowley follower. And that, that book is so, I mean, what happened in the West Memphis Three uh, criminal case is really one for the ages. It's, it's an incredible case. It's totally unbelievable. Um, the stars cost celebre got involved, so all these stars were involved, and um yeah, it's 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 sh- it's absolutely shocking. It's a
2: Yeah, I want to get to that. Um but look just as an aside, I think one of the people that is probably like a true successor to Crowley uh would
3: be Alan Moore. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And he really is. I mean he I've read he's gonna be in my next book and he's he says he spends half of his time doing comic book. He doesn't actually do the drawing. He does the writing. And the other half he does is uh, um, is occultism. So he, all his occultism is, is really um, integrated into his writings. And it goes all the way through, whether it's uh, from hell or whether it's... Um, what else is it? Uh, gosh, there's so from vendettattas vendetta. yeah I think the references the, so the what what this let me just go back what the Sphinx means for uh, in front of the house of the temple is in order to dare we must know in order to will we must dare in order to will to possess Empire and reign we must be silent so, wow yeah <laughs> that doesn't just say it all doesn't yeah it? so that's really yeah it is it's right there so and that's kind of like you see in the common culture of conspiracy, culture, if you want to call it that, is is really just trying to figure out, um, you know, what's been going on. And there's so much silence with these occultists, whether they're Masons, Crowleyites, all this other stuff. They really uh, won't tell, you know. And here's another one from Levy. This is the Levy instructs us how to practically apply the four powers of the Sphinx in his final work, The Great Secret. To attain such an achievement is necessary to know what has to be done, To will what is required, to dare what must be attempted, and to keep silent with discernment. Mm. So
2: So a lot of emphasis on silence, which I notice in your book, there's a picture of Crowley dressed in a robe, putting his his index finger in front of his mouth, you know, symbol of silence.
3: Right, and I actually wrote, there's like an article somewhere out on the internet about the doctrine of silence in uh, Western culture. And uh, I can send that to you. It's, I actually have it. Uh, let's see if I can dig it up. But uh, it actually, that concept goes through all of these very interesting um, elements. So it goes all the way back to Egypt, Greece, these Harpocrates with the god, Harpocrat, which Crowley references. The Hellfire Club on its entrance had um, this kind of concept of silence. They had the, the things. Then Crowley integrated it. And then Skull and Bones, at the back of their atrium, has two, like, uh, skeletons making the sign of silence, and then the Bohemian Club rolls out this statue every year when it starts with this um, statue making the sign of silence. And then you can see all these other political figures and occultists and all these other people who are, you know, out there making the same hand gesture, you know, right in people's faces, and they think that nobody's going to notice.
2: Right. Uh, one one point about Alan Moore, uh, one of his lesser known comics uh, series that he did was named Promethea. and Prometheus is really just his him putting his occult beliefs on in a graphic novel form. Interesting. And when it's really graphic when it's, and it's a lot of it is borrowed directly from Crowley. Crowley is mentioned and shown several times in that comic book.
3: Interesting. Well, Prometheus is the you know the Titan was thrown out of heaven for giving light or fire to humanity and uh, it's it's a common symbol of satan and uh, so it's probably Prometheus either a more feminine view or something like that but uh that's why that that statue of Prometheus that gilded statue of Prometheus is right there at thirty rock in downtown New York City yeah <laughs> and that goes back to um Helen Blavatsky, she loved the concept of Prometheus as this kind of thing. And it's pretty interesting, too, like, you know, the Titans lived on Olympus with the gods. And, you know, a lot of these guys call themselves Olympians, you know. And that's, if you read uh, the Committee of 300 by, uh, you know, they, that's, the, that's another reference for the Committee of 300 is the Olympians. These people who, you know, these occultists with the secret knowledge who think that they're kind of demigods, really. Like for example, here's a good example at the uh, Bohemian Grove a lot of people think the Bohemian Grove is some spot in San Francisco that is independent of itself, it's not, it's an adjunct to the Bohemian Club that's in San Francisco on Taylor Street, and right next to the Bohemian Club is the Olympic Club, which you know, it's basically, and the Olympic Club has its own golf course out, kind of closer to San Francisco State, but uh, yeah, I mean the Olympic Club it's, it's basically this elite club. It's hard to get into, you know, and uh, it's amazing. I used to walk by there all the time. I used to live right by. Really? Yep. Yeah.
4: <laughs> uh, I, I, I've never read any of Crowley's uh, biographies or anything like that, but I hear just uh, word of mouth that on his deathbed that uh, he was broke and uh, didn't have. He no longer had, you know, any followers. And he, his last words were, "I'm perplexed." Uh, is there any
3: truth to that? That's what that's what one people did. Uh, some people did say he was basically broke. He was rich most of his life. His money ran out kind of in the mid twenties. Uh, he was a prof- profligate spender, and uh, but he was receiving money from people who admired him. He was in a, in Hastings on the southern coast of England when he died in kind of a boarding house, but it wasn't kind of a shanty boating house. It was an upper scale, you know, kind of semi-legit. He would take uh, followers. People would come to see him. Uh, He was trying to carry on, you know, the great work with his followers. So people who were like, uh, I think one guy was named Brady McMurtry. He was a follower in the OTO and all these other people would come and see him. And uh, his his last days were pretty well, um, you know, written about by a variety of different people who came to to view him, I think one person said where he lived was redolent with corruption. He was basically dependent upon massive doses of heroin. He was taking uh, enough heroin for about 20 people. And, uh, Seriously. yeah, and, uh, yeah, you can see, I think, uh, in my in the Alistair Crowley visual study, you can see some of the pictures of his last pictures and you know what he was up to. He <laughs> his he died. Um, I think his his last thing is let's see. He died December first, nineteen forty seven. And uh, you know everything was. He has like I actually have the last ritual in the book, and it starts off with "Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law," which was his kind of dictum. Uh, that's an eleven syllable, eleven le- uh, word phrase. So he stuck to his uh, you know his numerical meanings as a magician and uh it's pretty interesting I mean the guy was he really was something else i mean yeah evil real. as hell i mean really really was yeah. <laughs> uh, an evil prophet and uh well out of doubt a Satanist. i mean you can use that general term, but because of his complex thinking style and how broad his learn his his uh er- his broad erudition, you know it's like it's just to apply that label to somebody that complex doesn't really get to the, to the core of the personality and how occultism affects people's personality, I think is vital. And the fact that so much of it is silent and that people who are not in it, such as myself um, have to kind of to put it together without knowing is uh, I think really one of the challenges of where we're at um, in the third millennia since Jesus Christ, because I think that probably the new doc, these doctrines of Illuminism that are more prevalent and, and uh, are really maybe the next challenge for humanity since communism and Nazism or something like this, Illuminist uh, ideas are really capable of, you know, destroying cultures and destroying people to create what Crowley wanted to make. You know, his idea of a utopia uh, is a hell. And if you read the Prophet of Evil and what he thought about. Um, the world's ideas, almost the same as Hitler. Basically, yeah. the weak should be slaughtered, uh, the people should be bred without regard to love. Um, he thought that, you know, get rid of the weak. I mean, you can read the the whole concept of the New World Order. And You know, Crowley and Hitler, I mean, there's actually, I've had a couple articles out there about Crowley and Hitler too, how similar an outlook they were. Crowley was kind of like the, Evil philosopher and Hitler put it into action, and the and the degrees of separation between Crowley and Hitler aren't that far. Some people in their minds might think they are, but Crowley's one of his main followers was a guy by the name of JFC Fuller, who was a military guy, and they wrote wrote a book uh, called "The Light, um, A Star in the West," and he was JFC Fuller was one of two Englishmen who was invited to Hitler's fiftieth birthday. So, yeah. yeah, and and Crowley was there in Hitler right right as Hitler ascended to power. And there's a lot of tons of stories about how, how Westerners wanted Crowley to come in, I mean, excuse me, Westerners wanted Hitler to come into power. There's so many uh, stories about that that have been covered up, you know, uh, and things went wrong with them. You know, obviously there was this massive war, killed sixty billion people. It's really probably one of the lesser uh, known parts of of uh western history or people don't want to acknowledge like anthony sutton wrote about that and ruined his career about the the financing of hitler and who was
2: there were a lot of people that made a lot of money on building up that war machine no
3: doubt no doubt but there's people who make money off of war in any time so um you know it's uh that build up to how hitler came to power and who was behind him i think is uh is definitely worth uh Worth learning about. So that those two degrees of separation between Crowley and Hitler are not that separate, and they're both occultists. I mean Hitler is definitely can be seen as a psychopathic god who believed he was a god, and that's what Crowley's idea was, and that's the original temptation from the Garden of Eden of the serpent. You shall be his gods, you know. Yeah. That was Crowley's oh. Crowley advocated was this god self godhood. And that goes back to the Rosicrucians, you know, man is God.
2: I, wanted, I want I wanna go into the West Memphis three. And, um, we got, we got a truck passing by. That's all right. No problem. Uh, about the West Memphis three. Now I can imagine your book is probably going to make a lot of people mad because I have seen, uh, I've seen the third part of paradise lost, which I think really, if you've seen that one, if you pretty much have seen the other two. Yeah, I agree. And are you familiar with West Memphis three, Luke? Like mm-hmm. what happened there? No idea. Um, well, can of go over what happened with West Memphis 3 and why you believe that um, these guys actually did commit the crime that they
3: were accused of doing? Correct. So I'm like in a minority. Most people think that there yeah. was this miscarriage of justice. Uh, I came across the West Memphis 3 while I was researching my newest book um, because there was something that happened in the courtroom involving Crowley. So I would written Prophet of Evil, I'm uh, fairly close to becoming an expert in Crowley. Uh, and so when I heard them, Crowley on the stage on this, cr- on this criminal case in 1994, I was actually kind of in shock because I uh, was pretty surprised that people knew about Crowley prior to the Internet in a lot of ways. So anyway, uh, it led me to further research. Well, I'd heard about the West Memphis Three. I actually had seen the original um, documentary back in, like, 96, and I just... You know, pass through. I watch a lot of documentaries. I just thought that everything was, uh, as the the lawyer said, and then I heard they'd been released, and I just figured, okay, they were done justly. I didn't really research in detail, but once I found out Crowley was involved, I was like, wow, I got to find out about this. Well, the repository of all the court documents is at a website called at Callahan Eight K, like Harry Callahan, Dirty, Dirty Harry. So, it really, all the somebody had done all the work. So, all I needed to do was just start reading. So, I started reading, and when I started reading. I realized that this case uh, has occultism suffusing through the whole thing from beginning to end. And Curlyism and and I understood a lot of it. Like, I understood from the Book of the Law that we talked about earlier in our discussion today. Uh, the intro is, you know, this is from the King of Thebes. This And Thebes was this magical place in Greece. And there's such a thing called the Theban Alphabet, which is a magical alphabet. Well... Um, the Thievin alphabet runs through the entirety of the West Memphis three case. There's just tons of, these guys tattoo themselves with the Thievin alphabet supposed to have magical properties. Um, so, uh, as for reading it, I was really astonished at what I, what I found to be was a miscarriage of justice. There's a small minority of people who really are in, uh, an agreement with the, the outcome of the court case. And, uh, so I, uh, I wrote the book to try to explain like what had happened is these somebody or somehow they had convinced the public that no occultism was involved in the case. So I tried to, to show that it suffuses the whole thing from beginning into the present because the central character, this guy Damien Eccles, is going back into occultism again. He's tattooed his whole body. He's got all these friends who are occultists and it goes back to the actual crime itself. And, uh, uh, this guy has, he says he's demon possessed. He has this guy, this demon called Rosie, who takes him out on night journeys, and um, he drinks blood. He said that on like record. There's videos of him saying he drinks blood. Uh, some of the relatives who were in west of Memphis drinks blood. The mother's heavily involved into witchcraft. Uh, these guys wanted and I trace it in my book, that he wanted this book called The Encyclopedia of Witchcraft that's inspired by Gerald Gardner, and Gerald Gardner is a devotee of Crowley. So you see this kind of Crowleyism or the the offspring of Crowleyism involved in the West Memphis 3 case, and it's still ongoing. This guy, he's straight up a witch. He moved to Salem, uh, Massachusetts, the place of the witch trials. And uh, the themes that are involved in West Memphis 3, I think, are are very potent, important themes for any American or anybody uh, today. And it's about deception, it's about public relations, propaganda, it's about law, it's about um, justice, it's about occultism, it's about perception and reality and how uh, people can get twisted. I mean, it's incredible how bad the journalism is. I mean, it's off the charts what they overlooked and some of these books have overlooked. And it's also off the charts how... P- there's actually a very strong element, and I usually don't talk about it, but there's a very strong element of mind control in this whole case about mm. convincing other people uh, things that didn't happen. So this creation of mythology. And it's very um, skilled. And most people would never want to accept the fact that they'd been duped, chumped, and lied to as bad as they have been in the West Memphis 3 case. And... uh Sadly, they, most of the journalists have been, and it actually goes in. I mean, and there, there's all kinds of the intimidation is incredible, and the I know how exactly how they got away with it uh, because they have the network is incredible. Um, it's incredible. You just wouldn't believe it if you want to have an interesting journey. Go up and say the Me- West Memphis Three are justly guilty. Man, you will you'll meet some interesting people. You'll get set up. You will be um, pilloried uh, If you're like me I mean I can't even go into the details It's incredible I know why some people don't tell the truth in this country anymore Because uh, The ramifications are too severe Well um, as you said
2: there was, so much, there was so much media attention On the West Memphis 3 At the beginning and then when they were released And there were so much um, You know fam- So many famous people that flocked to that case to say that the, that these guys were innocent. Um, I, I have not admitted to you that I've not read that book. So, do you, do you think that possibly Eccles talked these other two guys into killing these these three those three children, or was it more of just like they were accessories and Eccles did it all? Uh,
3: I think that there was a central two. I really would call it the West Memphis two. Because the third yeah. guy, Miss Kelly, had confessed yeah. after his after he was guilty after he was found guilty in the court of law, he confessed about six more times, so it's like, I'm telling you we did it, I'm telling you we did it, but nobody believes he's saying he did it because the other two have convinced the public that he was a semi um uh challenged mentally challenged person, but though even those All IQ right. numbers were bogus too, and he gets detailed and analytical um, confessions. And, uh, you know, it's really kind of like, it's just incredible. But I think that um, people need to know this guy. I mean, this the, the central guy, Damian Eccles was in three separate psychiatric facilities leading up to the murders. And yeah, that's true. They, yeah. they said, and all these other different people, like 20 different people said different things about him, which are recorded in the book. The evidence is overwhelming, really once you see all the evidence, and, like, um, it's really just too, it's, there's, this, it, it's just, it's an amazing case. It's really incredible.
2: And So were they performing, like, human sacrifice, basically? Was that what they were trying to? Um,
3: what I will say is that, uh The events and the timeline of what happened were very similar to things that you could find in occult manuals and witchcraft rituals. I'll leave it at that. Gotcha. It's dark, man. It goes right... (laughs) It goes to the very bottom, dude. If you want to go and see how evil the world can be, re-read this case.
2: Well, I think we'll have to have you back on to talk about that more in depth once I get that... I can uh, sit down and get that read and We can go into more depth about it. It's an
3: insane case because it's still ongoing. I mean, this case, they're free, but they haven't been exonerated. What happened is they were given an Alford plea which allowed them to publicly state their innocence, but they're guilty at law. And some people can't get that. So what it means is that these guys have been found guilty at law twice, not once. And it's like something novel in the history. This case is absolutely singular in American legal history in that they have been found guilty at law twice and are still convincing people they're innocent. When all the facts and everything. I mean, we all know people who, in our lives, we come across somebody who says, it's everybody but me. And in this case, they're saying that it's everybody else's fault but me, but nobody seems to get it. So these guys say that two juries got it wrong, the Arkansas Supreme Court got it wrong, the prosecutors got it wrong, the cops got it wrong. Um, this, the, this got went to got. They asked for a writ of certiorari in the, the Supreme Court of the United States, so they got it wrong. Um, and all the locals who came in with additional information that was provided to the police but wasn't uh, wasn't salient or wasn't germane to the to the trial were all liars too. So there's a lot of stuff from the court records that I mean uh, the police records that I put into the book that was never brought into court that they're saying these people lied, you know, and it's 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 astonishing. And then all their friends are liars too. So basically, the West Memphis Two want everybody to believe that there was a conspiracy of a hundred different people from a hundred different lives with a hundred different you know interests, and they all lied to conspire because they listened to Metallica and wore black T-shirts. <laughs> I mean, it's off the charts. You can't be more stupid. I mean, you. The, no. I mean, the followers of the West Memphis Three who think they're innocent are some of the stone cold dumb dumbest people. I usually wouldn't say that to try to be polite, but they are just. I've got the emails, man. These people can barely—they're barely literate. <clears throat>
2: wow, it's <laughs> exclusive coming out on our
3: show, guys. I mean, it's ama- <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, you'd be one of the scariest things about this case is the supporters. They're, de- I mean, you don't want to run into those people. You need to know that they're out there, that are, there are people that dumb, like people who don't know the Earth revolves around the sun, and they're giving opinions <laughs> on court cases on the Internet. Yeah. I mean, it's really <laughs> scary. It's a ter- It's absolutely terrifying. And they've well, the all kind these of other those and, kind of people. Like, anyway. they don't even know what due process means. Like, they don't right, even think right. they got due process. I mean, I- you want to go into, like, oh, man. I've got, oh, Dude, it's. I had Jack Blood send me an email saying these guys were railroaded. This is a guy who is on the radio giving people advice who has no. I mean, people have no idea what's going on in this case. They don't even know the detailed analytical inquiry that the, all these courts did for this. And a lot of the problem is the people. There's all these charlatans who surround this case. Three who, are, in my opinion, are charlatans are. Mara Leverett, Joe Berlinger, and John Douglas, who's the FBI. Once you read about what they wrote about these cases, and they've actually wrote stuff about, like, uh, the Amanda Knox case that took place in Italy. And these guys get so many of the facts wrong, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's really, oh, man. You think there's
2: something going on there with Amanda Knox as well? Oh, Amanda
3: Knox is guilty as hell. There's no doubt. I mean, you read that stuff. She's. I mean, she is absolutely was involved in that, and she's a liar, and uh, she lied from the beginning. I mean, all that they faked the crime scene. She blamed. She used to blame the other guy. Blamed the black eye defense, and said she was sorry when she got caught. Her story changed. They covered up the crime scene. They covered up all. I mean, <clears throat> the the kicker is is that like she told the cops when they came in. Oh wow. She she must not be there because she she locked her door. Well, she likes to lock her door a lot. She said that to the cops. Well, her other roommates, when she they heard her say that, they knew something was terribly wrong because Kircher never locked her door. So they knew right on the spot that Knox was lying. Hmm. So there's I mean you that she is uh they, that whole thing uh and there's a lot of stuff that's very similar between that case and Eccles or the West Memphis three because. They both uh, ramped up and got a bunch of public relations specialists to uh, manipulate the public um, through all through the social media. Very skilled social media guys. I mean, I had one thing. I woke up in the middle of the night and posted something at 2 a.m., and I had a countervailing response within 10, 10 minutes from some random person. Right. So it's kind of like what they do in politics. It's just you address anybody's statement. I think the sky's blue. No, it's black. Because somebody will then sure think there's, that there's a lot some, of ad hominem attacks too. Oh yeah. Oh dude, I've seen it all. Yeah. I mean I've seen the whole every you know, the whole black box stuff. But it's like what's really scary about these cases and a lot of stuff is people cannot parse between facts. I mean if you said I think that the moon is made up of rock that's been there for thousands of years and it's screwing up over a hundred thousands of years and then somebody else said the moon is made of cheese, some people could not Ascertain which one of those statements is closer to the facts or not. They'll just yeah. say there's a dispute in understanding. We'll never know, right? Somebody said you know the, the moon's made of cheese, and somebody said yeah. it's made of rock. I, I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of. it. Yeah, we we'll never get to the bottom of that. Yeah, that's what they say about nine eleven. That's like one of the the fam- one of the, the things they they say about nine eleven. We'll just never get to the bottom, and then you basically say, "Really?" Yeah.
2: So anyway,
3: it's. Well, Luke and I were right there
2: with you on that. We're, we're truthers as well. As yeah. we, we consider ourselves that. So there's, just,
4: there's such confusion nowadays that you can't even read an article that seems mundane without knowing if it's biased in some yeah, way. And, yeah, exactly. you, can, you can try to go find more sources, but all of those might be biased <laughs> too. So
3: everyone's... Just lost in this haze of confusion at all times. And it's intentional. Yep. I mean, a lot of it's intentional. Look, I mean, a lot of these people just want to confuse the living daylights out of it, just to, so you don't get to a statement of fact. And uh, it's really too. It's really sad. Um, and there's a lot of that in the West Memphis Three case. A lot of politicization. A lot of red state, blue state. I don't know why um, that uh, how and why that gets involved in a case like that where there's larger issues at stake. But, well, I think it's because of just like that perception we're in the south here
2: and there's that perception um and I think that was you know Arkansas that you know the perception is just a bunch of dumb redneck hillbilly cops and they don't know what
3: they're doing so well, it's a misperception in this case. For sure. well, I think that they were overwhelmed about I mean, it's a horrible event, but uh I thought that the one of the prosecutors was superb. I mean, the guy who was uh Counter cross-examining Eccles on the stand was great. I mean, I, I looked it. I didn't see this kind of evidence of, you know, hillbilly. I mean, it's just, it's it's really sad. It's really just too right. bad that that all this other thing things got in the way than actual the dispassionate, cold hunt for truth. You know, uh, because this guy's. I mean, this guy's dangerous. The guy who these guys who got out there dangerous. I'm not kidding. They're dangerous, very, very dangerous people. And, uh, you know, if I know the, for a fact that cops are watching them all. So you know, yeah. things could go wrong.
2: Well, I think we'll leave it on that note, William. You've been an excellent guest. Uh, tell us where everybody can get, your, can get your books.
3: Well, they're out there on uh, Amazon, uh, Kindle. Um, you can email me at occult911 at gmail.com. I'm giving them, you know, if you want a book, you can, call, you can email me there or have any follow-up information or uh, anything like that. But uh, I'm trying to get my new website up where I can post post articles and stuff like that. But just to kind of follow up or just to end up, you know, I, I do consider myself a Christian. I believe Jesus Christ was the Messiah. I just kind of try to leave that uh, with people. I think people should be read the, the Bible I mean, I know it's not within the context of what we've been talking about, but I do believe in, uh, you know, this is. there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on, and uh, there is a supernatural world, and uh, I think that there's a good side and a bad side, and, uh, you know, if people get troubled by this information, uh, I think that... You know, for me, you want to build your house on the rock, like it says in the New Testament. So, I definitely encourage people to uh, read the book in prayer and uh, find refuge there.
2: Excellent, because it is some it is some pretty weighty stuff. I did read the last, uh, like think you included his poem to the Scarlet Woman, and I was my head was spinning after reading that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. So I mean, and thing, I'm right there with you on that. Here's the
3: thing, man, is that the bad things do happen in the world like this upheaval of Hitlerism and Nazism. this crazy things and you want to see the serpent's egg while well, it's still an egg, you know what I mean? You don't want to feed yeah. that thing so it grows and metastasizes. You want to stop it before it gets out of hand. And for me, when I look out at the common culture and what we're being force-fed and stuff, it's not it's not wholesome. It's it's un It's actually evil, and so I don't use that term lightly, but I see uh, a lot of that evil out there, and that's why I I want to put this stuff into a book so people can see and read it clearly and understand the way these people think. Like Crowley was a wrecking ball. He destroyed so many lives, and his ideas are malevolent, and uh, they're selfish, and they operate without integrity towards other people. Uh, They keep secrets. Uh, They operate without, you know... Uh, giving people full knowledge so you know I'm totally and 100% against what he stood for uh, as best as I can
2: Excellent Well, stay on the line, William and uh, we're just going to close out this segment and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal Alright, we are back on Conspiranormal and uh, that was quite an interview Luke, what did you think about that?
4: I think that uh, he filled me in on a lot of things that I didn't know about Crowley uh, I'm too lazy to read biographies, just like I said. Yeah, <laughs> like
2: I said, you read the Cliff's notes, of the Lepus Levi, Levi, book.
4: Yeah, uh, well, I mean, his uh, 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 Crowley's workings and uh, Lepus Levi, they're they're just they're so thick and hard to read. Like you have to read it, you know, no music yeah. playing. Uh, nothing else going on in your day, just you, and then you have to read a paragraph like ten times to understand what he's talking about. Sometimes. Well, you didn't
2: you didn't read it with any like you know hardcore metal playing in the background, uh, like no. screams, <laughs> goat, uh, goat spraying, it's pretty
4: distracting. I start headbanging and like kicking stuff over, yeah. so um, and I can't read
2: anything like that. Well, I was gonna uh, go ahead and read something like about, uh, about the movie Noah that we went to go see, but uh, I'm not gonna do that because. We, we'd have a nice long interview with William, so I'm gonna save that for for next week. Cool. Um, we had Zach here tonight. Yeah. Woohoo! Hey, what's up? Zach, He's is righteous. Here. Yeah, monitoring the board and li- listening oh. to all this stuff. What do you think of all that stuff, Zach? I mean, for someone, I don't know what you know or what you don't know. So I don't well, know. What, what did you What did you think of it?
5: I don't know. I'm I'm a I'm a skeptical guy, so I don't know mm-hmm. how much of that I'll believe. I don't know how many actors and musicians are actually in the occult or anything. I don't, I don't know. Just because of the movies they're in. I
2: yeah. Don't know. Well, there's a, I mean, Luke and I have talked about this stuff before. Like, we talked about, like, you know, there seems to be all this Illuminati imagery and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff that's around. And you get that every year. You got the Super Bowl and you have the Grammys. Mm-hmm. And they talk about you know what Illuminati imagery was at the Super Bowl this year. What <laughs> Illuminati energy imagery was at the Grammys? Right. Almost and, to the point and, of exhaustion. And
4: then, and then all of these artists, uh, PR uh, people are are telling, they're encouraging the artists to to follow that kind of like Illumi, Illuminati to incorporate right. that into the music and the videos if and it, everything.
5: If it gets your attention, you attention, yeah,
4: know. exactly. Because the younger crowd, even even my nephew who's mm. curious about all of this type of thing, he asked me. He's like, uh, are all these things true that I've been seeing videos about, about, you know, the Illuminati? The most commonly available videos on YouTube about the Illuminati are just like watered down, you know. Sure. The new agey kind of whatever, you There's
5: know. There's a triangle in it. Yeah. It's it, Illuminati. It, <laughs> it,
4: exactly. And, uh, and, and, you know, my nephew's wanting to know the truth and he's among that crowd that's really uh, uh, impressionable. And it's acceptable to all, all the lies, you know, that are being put out about Illuminati. Well,
2: I have to wonder whether it comes from, where does it come from? Does it come from people actually reading stuff like William was talking about, about uh, Crowley and the Illuminati and Freemasonry? Is all that coming from that? Or is it coming from people that are, like, like the conspiracy circles have just so injected that in so much into our culture? then now it's just become kind of like a fashion thing. Yeah. Or is it possibly a little bit of both? Yeah, I'd probably say both. Uh, what are the, isn't, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big rap guy, but isn't like Jay-Z, isn't he one Jay-Z of the guys yeah. that kind of pushes this, Con- all this Kanye kind of West. stuff? Yeah, 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 Kanye, Kanye, Kanye West. Yeah, Kanye West is West. like a megalomaniac. Right, just like she, uh, just
4: like he just said, Rihanna, yeah. t- uh, Kesha. Mm-hmm. Uh, all all of them are
2: just using it for marketing. And Now it's like what Miley Cyrus and, and you know, Miley Cyrus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: I was uh, I was in class the other day, and there was a group of people talking about how Little Wayne's music was super <laughs> satanic and had a lot of Illuminati imagery. And
2: he's jumping on the bandwagon
4: that, with all uh, Yeah,
5: they were they were going crazy over that. Well, I you know was, what's
2: weird to me is just like when when I was coming up, like when I was a kid in the eighties and the nineties. It was all like, you know, Metallica is evil, and Judas Priest is evil, and you gotta play the, you gotta play play it backwards, backwards, you're gonna 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 hear like, hell, Satan, and they're gonna make you kill yourself, and and, you know, in the 90s, it was the same kind of thing, with all like, really like, all that hardcore stuff, you like, Luke, you know, Mm -hmm. right? and which some of those guys are openly satanic, you know, whatever, and uh... But now it's all like now I hear in like the two thousands and now in the teens it's all this like just pop stuff that is like said to be satanic and, and
5: well it's it's, it's whatever it's like popular, what you know? yeah like metal and stuff that's popular back in the day but now like pop is popular so you know whatever is popular has to yeah. has to have the satanic images. He's right 80s, yeah.
4: 80s metal just made its biggest explosion you know that's when that's when metal was at its... Uh, yeah. ...is in
2: the 80s. I suppose. But I found it interesting, too. You know, we we um, we talked about... Uh, I think that... they are not going to hear this part, but a little bit about the Ninth Gate, about the movie The Ninth Gate, some of the actors in Hollywood that are into all this kind of occult stuff. Like Johnny Depp came up quite a few times. Right. And this movie that he was talking about, Transcendence, uh, it's... Basically, like the movie Lawnmower Man from the 90s, where this guy is put into this computer, his essence basically is put into this computer, and that goes all the way back into like transhumanism and uh, all that kind of idea, which is like this kind of like brand new occultism in a way of this idea of you're going to live forever, whether it's through like a robotic body or something, or by copying and downloading, basically, your memories and your brain into a computer. Huh. So. Well, Luke, you had a nice little trip. You went to Lucifer's
4: Liquors. (laughs) I didn't, no, I didn't go to Lucifer's Liquors. Uh, We didn't, we were rushing so much, we didn't really have much time to drink. Uh, We, we, the first night we camped out on the beach in Pensacola. Uh, It was pretty rough, and I didn't expect that. Really? Yeah, I mean, during the day, obviously, it's it's fine, you know, everything is nice and dry and the wind's kind of low, but at night, it gets cold, cold condensation in your tent, uh, wind blowing super hard, blowing your no, tent, man. blowing stakes out of the sand, uh, there's nothing to build a fire, you can't build a fire because the wind's blowing too but hard. But is this
2: supposed to be primitive camping? So it
4: was real primitive. Yeah, uh, I can tell and, you that. And I'm sunburnt and peeling. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, but uh, yeah, then, then we came back to Tennessee after, uh, well, at first we went clubbing the second night, and the third night we came back to Tennessee and did some trails over in uh, Savage Gulf and then camped there for the night without a fire, <laughs> uh, which was pretty creepy. Yeah. And then, uh, and then
2: headed back home. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a good time. Had a lot of fun over there in Dunlap, Tennessee. Dun- Dunlap. Alright, well... I want to call it, uh, guys. So Just a quick note: we are on the Fringe Radio Network. We, of course, are not live. We're just uh, we may be streaming on their feed. Um, so go look us up there at fringe, fringeradionetwork.com. dot com, and just look under Conspiracy Normal Podcast, and that's where we are. So you know, fun to do. Next week we have on La Marzulli. Real excited about this interview. Yeah. Marzulli, somebody I've been wanting to get on for a long, long time. Mm. We've kind of been touch and go for a while I was supposed to come on in February and uh, actually we're gonna probably record him tonight but he's just kind of a busy guy he goes to a lot of conferences so we're only gonna have him for an hour next week so we're gonna talk about some other things too so without further ado I guess uh, we're gonna call him tonight guys right on. to come back and join us on hey